0: Hello and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that normally critically analyzes some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are continuing with our mini-series on The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes by Suzanne Collins. So this is our second episode and we will be covering chapters four, five, and six today. But in case you need a little refresher, Chris is going to give us a recap of those chapters.
1: Yeah, so in these three chapters, Snow and Lucy Gray get to know each other a bit better. They also start to work the cameras quite a bit more as they're in the zoo she not only sings another song, but they uh, get to know some of the capital residents. Snow gets a demerit for taking the initiative and meeting her at the station and being put in the zoo cage. And as he and Lucy Gray bond, Sejanus struggles with his own guilt, uh, as well as his tribute Marcus, who he was his old schoolmate from District 2. Snow and the other mentors discuss ways to improve general engagement with the games, bringing up the possibilities of gambling or sending food to tributes. And at the end of chapter six, we see them back at the zoo, and one of the other mentors, Arachne, goes too far in teasing her tribute and gets her throat sliced.
0: Yeah, I'm tempted to just go straight into our first impressions segment, but first we need to read a quote.
1: Yes, so this quote comes from chapter five, as Snow and Lucy get to know each other, and Lucy asks what he gets out of being a mentor.
0: He felt embarrassed. Here, in the relative privacy of the corner, he realized for the first time that she would be dead in a few days. Well, of course he'd always known that, but he had thought about her more as his contender, his filly in a race, his dog in a fight. The more he had treated her as something special, the more she became human. As Sejanus had told the little girl, Lucy Gray was not really an animal, even if she was not capital.
1: Yeah, that is a great quote. We, we talked about how the protagonist of, or, or the main character of this book is a villain in the original trilogies. And I think this is a really interesting way of having that villain grapple with the humanity of those who he ultimately is complicit, at least in the oppression of. Where we see that humanization happening, but we also see how dehumanizing his perspective really is. And and the last thing he says about it, after he says, you know, the more she become human, he still says that Lucy Gray was not really an animal. Not she was not an animal. She was not really an animal.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think we see that through these three chapters, his perspective slowly kind of eroding a little bit, but mm-hmm. not... Enough to see her or anybody in the districts as his equal.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Well, why don't we move on to our first impressions? What did you think about these chapters?
0: I think my first impressions were like a lot of yikes. So, obviously, the end of the three chapters we read, I'm like, oh wow, someone's already getting killed and we haven't even entered the games yet. Mm-hmm. And like, it's obviously brutal but also at the same time understandable. Not that it uh, justifies it, but, like, yeah, it's just horrible. What are you doing? Just, you're starving, and I'm going to play a game with you so people in the audience will laugh at me like taking the sandwich away from you. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's all quite awful. So that was the yikes moment. Also, the Academy kids in general are big, big problems. Mm-hmm. And... Another yikes moment was when one of their teachers was saying, if history teaches you anything, it's how to make the unwilling comply.
1: Oh my god, yes.
0: Wow. (laughs) Especially, I think, because for both of us coming from a background, studying history is just such a betrayal of something I love <laughs> like that is the opposite of what history should be
1: you're you're so right
0: history should be learning why things have come to be the way they are hopefully in the pursuit of not doing these terrible unjust oppressive things again not that that happens but it should be about like understanding other people and their their stories and their history and their narratives and their religions and you know all of these different aspects and the Mm -hmm. context in which all of these things was done and then just oh it's to teach people how to like abuse and exploit others Yeah. yeah
1: yeah that moment stood out to me quite a bit. As you mentioned, we both studied history, and I'm still studying history in grad school, as longtime listeners probably know. And when I first saw, ooh, there's a history teacher, my my, like excitement went up. And then he immediately (laughs) says that. And I'm just like, what? Oh, my dear. That is just, it's just, yeah, so antithetical to what I see as history. And it's made me realize that now, like I am less curious about the history of Panem, though I'm obviously very curious about that as well. but I'm more curious now about the historiography of Panem. and for those who aren't familiar with the term, While history is the study of the past, historiography is the study of history. So it's like the study of the study of the past. Basically, how that study has changed itself over time. What trends in methods or topics are getting more and more popular. The ways that people study history, how that's changed, and how that's been contextualized by politics, culture, academics, all these other kinds of things. And so the way that the way that you study and teach history fits within the wider conversation of how historians are looking at history is the historiography. And that comment and the fact that he is, you know, this clearly pretty reputable teacher in the Capitol makes me just think, you know, what is the historiography? How have professional historians and academics been talking about the importance of histories and and what methodologies go into that is just something that I am now so curious about. And just based off that one line, I have so many, many more questions.
0: For sure. And I like how you, that you take it in this very Ravenclaw way, where my reaction <laughs> was like, so then there's no hope.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I also was just frankly horrified by it because it is horrifying but after that initial reaction yeah that that ravenclaw just kind of went into overdrive but yeah it's uh it's definitely something that was really really striking in the reading
0: education is so powerful and the people who have the power to say what goes into it and what perspective books and curriculum is written from and what perspectives you have represented it makes all the difference
1: yeah absolutely.
0: I mean, and obviously not having a horrendous teacher also helps
1: <laughs> absolutely yes well what other what other impressions did you want to talk about?
0: The only other one I, that i mean there's there's so many things, but another one that I was just like I have to touch on is just that I love Lucy Gray. she's <laughs> so great. Yeah, I just love how she's like, oh, do you get a better grade if I shine? And her saying that, no, the singing that I did at the Reaping, like, that was for me. It had nothing to do with you all. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, can move a crowd, too. She gets people to bring them food. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying her very much.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And, I mean, also, one of my first impressions was how... Right, I was in the last episode (laughs) with the, you know, connections to Romani people. Yeah, yeah, that was really smart. Oh, thank you. Hashtag history. (laughs) But I'll just leave it for later. I was going to talk about that a little bit with the touch points. Okay, great. So why don't we go to what your first impressions were?
1: Yeah, well, I went over the historiography part, uh, which definitely (laughs) is a big one. On your point about kind of the ickiness of parts of this chapter, one thing that I definitely kept getting icked out from was the way that it describes how Snow gets tingles when he touches Lucy Gray. Which, oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, no, 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 no.
1: Oh, uh, no, no. Don't like that at all. Especially when it's, you know, side by side with his dehumanization of her. And it just speaks so much to even hit the subconscious effects that she has on him is so dehumanizing and it's so objectifying and like just gross. Yeah, I I thought that that was really really uh an interestingly off-putting thing to include in, in the way that they're they're relating to one another.
0: Mhm. Yeah. I also kind of love how I use the word yikes and you use the word icky.
1: You
0: <laughs> clearly have a really robust vocabulary.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The the last first impression I really wanted to talk about, though, was this idea of the demerits being introduced at the end of chapter four. You know it's something important in a Suzanne Collins book when it's the last thing that happens in a chapter, because that's basically setting up her really, really well-done way of keeping you reading where she's like, look at this new interesting thing! And then the next chapter starts (laughs) on that. But that demerits gets introduced, and I immediately saw it as a really interesting way of making it so that Snow's narrative itself has consequences and that his actions have limits and it really starts to build up this narrative as being a game for him as well where he can have up to three things that require demerits but he has to be careful about crossing that line too often or too much these are games. That theme and that idea comes up so, so often already that I'm really interested in seeing how that plays out, whether it's going to be where other students start to recognize the possibility of crossing a line and taking a demerit when they need to, or whatever else it might be, or if this is just something that Snow's going to have to think about himself. Like, I'm just interested in how that's going to play out as a element and a a mechanism in the narrative.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it is. It'll be interesting to see where the theme of games not only for the hunger games but where they're played throughout society mm. in all sorts of ways and throughout Panem and including in the capital
1: yeah yeah well why don't we move into our touch points then where, where we kind of see how this narrative connects with our reality did you have any touch points you wanted to, you wanted to discuss
0: The first one that kind of hit me was when he was talking to Dr. Gall and Dean Highbottom, which is just a hilarious name. Seriously. It's like the opposite of Longbottom. And he really really (laughs) is. His character is the opposite of Longbottom too, so Mm. it works out. But anyways, I'm going to stop talking about Harry Potter eventually. (laughs) But when... When they were talking with him and asking him about motivations for the games and all sorts of things, he was saying that, like, oh, well, people love children. Like, that's what this is about. But then he was, like, when he thought about it, people's love of children seemed a very fickle thing. And Mm -hmm. during the, the war, he'd been bombed and starved and abused and, like, not just by the rebel side. And, yeah, I just, I thought that was so poignant because yeah I think most people in the world don't really actually love children like they potentially love their own children but Mm. usually just don't care at least enough to do anything take any action about you know how the quote-unquote enemies kids are affected by warfare or How policies affect kids living in poverty, or they prefer to spend resources on biological kids, even though they're like millions of orphans and kids in foster care. And so, I mean, and then obviously you have so many people abuse their kids. And so, Mm. yeah, I just thought that that line was so kind of spot on because it's easy for people to kind of feel like they have that perspective like, oh, I love kids, but when push comes to shove it's usually just your own if that
1: yeah that was a really interesting line especially when juxtaposed to how earlier snow talks about how easy it is to manipulate people by manipulating their children Mm -hmm. and yeah i think that kind of his interactions with children and his thinking about himself as a child is a really interesting element that i'm looking to see more of
0: Yeah, yeah, I just I thought it was it was all very interesting. And I appreciated it because I've never read a line really like that in a book before. Mm. But not to just end on a bummer. (laughs) The other touch point (laughs) uh, I I was mentioning a little earlier was with some cultural ties to ideas of Romani people. It was really cool to see that come out through Lucy Gray and how she communicates about some things. Mm-hmm. Her saying like, oh no, I'm not really from District 12. And then the reporter being like, but you're from District 12, right? And she's like, if you say so. Like, I just <laughs> literally said the second before that I'm not from District 12. And I remember in a, in a class that I was in talking about How, like, talking about an idea of statehood and that so often kind of defining how people identify or defining how people identify others. And Mm -hmm. it was just so clear here that people can't conceive of people not being tied to a state or, you know, in this case, a district. But The Romani people are one of the few people groups throughout history that have been able to maintain a kind of ethnic and cultural identity while not being tied to a state. I just thought it was really interesting. And then I was also really annoyed (laughs) when Snow is talking with her, trying to get information for the questionnaire that they have to fill out to collect info about the tributes. And then he's like, so tell me about the Covey. And then the first question he asks is, so what side did you fight on in the war? I'm Mm -hmm. like, oh, like this is the question you ask. You have the opportunity to learn about a different culture. You have the opportunity to learn, even if you're not interested in that per se, which is a shame. You have the opportunity to like learn more about this person that... You at least feel something for that's not only disdain at this point,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's just like, who were you aligned with? And she was like, we didn't fight on either side. That wasn't our war. Like they, yeah, they moved around until they weren't allowed to anymore. And so, yeah, it's just kind of was interesting to see that we really do see things through our own cultures and values, and that's what Snow was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, uh, I looked up kovi because it just seemed like a word that that might actually exist. And it does mean a small party or flock of birds or a small group of people or things. And so it really does, I think, illuminate that idea of that kind of nomadic lifestyle. And I'm wondering if maybe Lucy is one of the songbirds from the title. I'm not sure whether that's the case, but I wouldn't be surprised.
0: <laughs> really? Wow My mind is blown <laughs> But but yeah, I, I'm appreciating it I am not Romani So I cannot speak to If it might annoy others
1: Yeah, and, and I would really be interested In seeing a Romani perspective on the book I'll probably keep myself away from them until we finish But that's definitely something I want to uh, come back to um, Maybe during our last episode or something
0: Yeah, exactly Well, what about you? What are your touch points?
1: In regards to identity, actually, our discussion from last week and learning more about the Covey kind of made me think a little bit more about identity in the Hunger Games and racial and ethnic identity, and in particular, I, I started getting really interested in the names of capital citizens in the games. Oh,
0: that's good. I I meant to look that up and I didn't, and then I've I've just been imagining them how I wanna imagine them. So maybe you'll ruin that <laughs> for me right now.
1: Well I I mostly just kind of started realizing, especially when we saw the whole list of mentors, what the kind of naming convention seems to be and, and I'm not Uh, A linguist, and so I'm not necessarily saying that I I have an expertise in this, but it seems to me that it's really evoking, you know, Latin language first names.
0: Yeah, very Roman, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And then family names seem to be Anglo names. I think it's really interesting that the family names tell you more about the history or culture of the people of Panem, that they are the descendants of a mostly Anglo-speaking United States of America, right? Which which makes sense. But then these chosen names, these, these personal names, are these Roman names where they are, even through the name of their country as Panem, going into their personal names really highlight this idea of being a part of this grand empire, and in particular, being a elite status in this empire, right? Mm. Um, I think it's really interesting. Napoleon, as a Frenchman, he started looking at Caesar as a model, and he kind of brought in this neo-Romanesque kind of period where he first saw himself as kind of a general like Caesar, but then as an emperor. And art style started to change to depict him in this kind of Romanesque imperial way. And it just really reminds me of the way that it seems the people of the capital are portraying themselves and hearkening back to Rome as a as best example of that.
0: Interesting. I could also see people like changing their like last name. You know, you take the name of whichever is the most powerful person, and so that's how their names get more anglicized or, you know, whatnot. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, so that was one of my touch points. Uh, The other one that I wanted to talk about was, you know, you mentioned those questionnaires and I thought it was really interesting that one of the questions on there was disability it reminded me of how you know many disability activists will talk about how disability is a social disorder not a personal disorder it means mm. that we as a society have not created the infrastructure that allows people of different abilities to succeed equally, mm-hmm. right? And that's a social problem, not a personal one. And I love that that paradigm. And here, when you look at the Hunger Games through that paradigm, the idea of a person with a disability coming into the Hunger Games, it is certainly not going to be created in a way that allows equal opportunity for every person, regardless of their ability, right? right. And so I think it's really interesting they're they're tracking this, but they're not doing so in a way to kind of proactively create a social infrastructure that will be equitable. It's very much, if anything, for the opposite.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and that was another thing too. I was like, why are they asking this question? Are they asking it because it's like, oh, this person has a disability. Now we can like go make sure their family can't reproduce or something you know, like this is where my mind's going because hmm. of how awful the capital like is the
1: eugenics and yeah, yeah that's a really good exactly. point
0: exactly so i don't know I, I was just like why are they asking this i don't like that they're asking this i'm scared yeah
1: yeah <laughs> i didn't even go in that direction but i think that that's a, a really really good question well why don't we move on to our next segment which we call back to the future Where we're going, we don't need roads. (laughs) This segment is where we look at the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes through the prism of the original Hunger Games trilogy. So why don't you start off? What what came to mind for you?
0: Yeah, so what I was thinking about was when Snow decided to return to the zoo after that first night where he had accidentally gotten into the cage with them. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to see if he could get Lucy Gray to sing again he was thinking like the audience would love that and perhaps it would bring the cameras back again Mm. so this to me just brought to mind the quote-unquote talents that victors had to Mm. uh showcase during their victory tour you can listen to our passion in the hunger Games episode uh if you want more on that we have a whole discussion on it
1: (laughs) i was make that about to make that plug too
0: (laughs) (laughs) Then I was also thinking, this was the way that Haymitch was thinking, too. When he was working with PETA on his first interview, when mm. he was doing, you know, that kind of subtle communication with Katniss in the arena that like, oh, one kiss gets you a bowl of broth. Like, you need to perform more if these cameras are going to be on you. Obviously, Haymitch had the structure already in place where... If you perform, you have the best chance of getting out.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: But for for Haymitch, it was so that hopefully he could bring one of them home. I mean, he put his bet on Katniss. Mm-hmm. And then obviously Snow is the opposite, where he's just thinking about how it can benefit him because he doesn't expect Lucy to make it out of the arena. And yeah. even if he had... Marcus, who he wanted from District 2, right? He still would have been thinking of himself for how it could potentially benefit him. But yeah, just it it kind of made me think about perhaps all successful mentors kind of have to think that way to some extent.
1: Certainly from this point onward, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: That's such a great contrast because exactly as you said, he's doing this before they're putting in the system. And he's thinking about this before they're putting in a system where this would benefit the tribute at all. He even says at one point when he's thinking about taking Marcus, is winning even the point? I know,
0: right? For Snow, it
1: might not be. But for the tribute, it certainly is. Not because even winning's the point, but surviving's the point. And that typically comes with winning. But I think you you hit it right on the head that that is such a difference in the way that even though he and Hamish are doing similar things, they're doing it in such different ways. Exactly. Well, my Back to the Future segment is about the memory that Sejanus has about Marcus. He, he talks about how they weren't enemies, but they weren't friends, but how at one point he hurt himself, his, his, his thumb, I think, and Marcus put snow on it and kind of helped him out at that point, and that that small act of kindness from over a decade past still is meaningful in that really interesting way, and it just really reminded me of Katniss and Peta and the way that they remember these kindnesses, small and big, from their childhood, and and how Katniss herself at one point gets surprised by how much she was paying attention to PETA. Just that kind of idea of people being schoolmates, and even if they don't have a close relationship, still being aware of each other, and still having these seemingly small interactions have profound effects when they get into a system as awful as The Hunger Games.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I didn't think of it that way. That's fascinating, and like, just imagine how Katniss would have felt if she had to mentor Peta. Mm. Ugh, that would be that'd be really, really difficult.
1: Yeah, seriously.
0: Well, I guess we should move on to our last segment, ruminations. What I'm ruminating about is just this idea of empathy. In the past three chapters, I mean, we talked a little bit already about Snow kind of slowly seeing Lucy Gray as more human. I wouldn't necessarily call that empathy exactly, but there there does seem to be moments where he feels somewhat empathetic towards her. But really, I think the person who showcases empathy the most is Sejanus. You know, and at first I was kind of like he's speaking out dissent in in some of his classes and i was like would would he be doing this if district 2 wasn't in the games because he couldn't sleep the night before and he just kept thinking about if it was his name that was called and and if he was somehow outside of that as a possibility would he feel as much empathy but i think maybe he would i i I don't know for certain but the fact that he didn't just bring sandwiches for Marcus. Once he thought about Mm. if it was him, then he applied that to everyone. If he was like Snow, he would be like, well, I have the biggest advantage if I let everybody else starve and only give food to my tribute but Sejanus. It's also, like, really sad because it's, like, through his empathy that it starts like other people more ruthless people seeing that kind of starts the more lasting practices in the games Mm. and if they didn't get ideas from his empathy it kind of makes you wonder if the games would have petered out on their own in some ways because Dr. Gall kind of picks up on that and she's like you know compassion is the key to the games empathy is the thing that we lack he has it. And imagine how wonderful it would be if everyone in the audience felt as passionately about their tributes as this young man here. And so it's through that that she sees more ways to engage an audience. Because as she said earlier, without an audience, there are no games. And so yeah, it's just something that I'm thinking about. And, and even how in the Quote We used at the beginning if I see her and treat her as special, then like I see her humanity. And mm. then later in that chapter, when he's gonna leave the zoo, it says, In the shadowy light, her color, her specialness had faded, making her just another drab, bruised creature. Ugh. I know, right? Oh, so good. Uh, I mean, in Every time I say so good in this podcast mini series, <laughs> assume that I mean it's so twisted, but her writing is so good. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it just kind of like begs the question of the connection between seeing someone up close and empathy. But then I was like also kind of applying that quote a little bit to myself too, because I was feeling so bad for Sejanis because he... Is in this terrible position. He has a terrible father. And he's participating in the games, which he thinks is evil. But then I was like, the person that I should really be having the most empathy for is Marcus. But because Mm. we don't see Marcus up close, he kind of fades into the background too. and
1: He remains a creature instead of a human himself.
0: Exactly, exactly. So... Yeah, that's what I'm ruminating on.
1: Yeah, definitely will be on my mind as well.
0: Yeah, what are, what are you thinking about?
1: Yeah, I've got a couple. One one just really quick was how they mention how High Bottom as a graduate student came up with the theoretical idea behind the Hunger Games. And it makes me wonder how long the Hunger Games had been theorized or planned because that had to be... At the very least, twenty years prior, and I don't know how long the the war was. You know, if it was ten years, and maybe I guess that makes sense for it to happen. At I the thought it was only war.
0: a few years, but maybe maybe I'm wrong on that.
1: I thought so too. But either way, it, it makes it seem like this idea has been around for much longer than just the last ten years, than just the end of the war, and they created the Hunger Games. And so, one thing I've been thinking about is when this came out and what sparked this idea and was it a rebellion or was it something else some other way of, of trying to instigate control and the idea of punishing for the rebellion is kind of just used as as an excuse for it
0: Mm-hmm. yeah and that reminds me in the last episode i i mentioned the japanese concentration camps and in, in in the u.s mm. and they were already starting work on those things before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. So that was not the cause for doing it. Like they already were laying the groundwork for that. And so what nefarious intent was there already?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, But a a theme that I think I'll be ruminating on as we go through here is the way that Snow looks at skill because he mentions a couple times in these chapters how kind of important it is for him to do something that requires skill, that he could never be a game maker because there's no skill involved in it, and that taking Marcus on and winning with Marcus wouldn't show any skill. And it just makes me think about kind of what what Snow values. He doesn't just value prestige, but he, he kind of seems to really value earned prestige. And that earning that prestige, I think, seems to come with something that is both tied to that skill and what skill is involved, but also tied to kind of inherent skills or inherent ability or inherent class, right? Because Mm -hmm. he does not value the plinths for using whatever skills they had to get into position that they're in. He values, he undervalues them because they are from the districts, and so I guess I'm I'm really interested in learning more about Snow's overall value system and how whether it be ideas about ability or privilege or class mix with this this concept of skilled work and what kind of work is skilled for him compared to other types uh, of worker labor. So that's just something I think I'll, I'll be thinking about a, as we move forward.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Well, I guess that's gonna wrap up this week's analysis. What chapters we'll we be discussing next week?
0: So next week, we're going to discuss the next four chapters. So that'll be seven, eight, nine, and 10. And that's going to conclude the first part of the book, The Mentor. So after next week, then we'll be moving on to part two. So here's another yikes, because I don't know who all will be dead and not dead by the time we next meet. <laughs> But I'm looking forward to our next discussion.
1: Me too. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find us on social media by searching for Geek Between the Lines on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Pinterest. You can also visit our website at bit.ly slash lines, or follow us on Patreon at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines. We want to thank our amazing patrons who have been doing a great job of engaging with us on the questions that we put up for our patrons. So if you want to join in and get access to all the great content we've made over the last year, you can also get access to this limited time book club type of discussions there on our Patreon. So please, please, please come in and join us there. All the support of our patrons just keeps us going and it's really, really valued. So thank you so much to all those who are there, and we hope to to see some more of you. You can also really help us out, especially as we're doing a fun mini-season like this, by telling a friend, which is really, really appreciated and would really be a great help as we're moving into this this fun new mini-season. We want to thank Kimberly taylor Pastella at Lacelet for designing not only our regular podcast logo, but the great special logo that we have for this mini-season. You can find her other designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. That's going to wrap up this week's episode. Until next week, geek out!